following sermon was recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.org. We're focused on the wrong question. And so Jesus asks them this question because he really is wanting to uh, get them to focus on the most important issues in the Old Testament, the most important topic, really, of the whole Old Testament. Um, uh, the thing that mattered most. And what's significant in the questions that they asked is they really weren't asking the right question. Uh, there is something more important than taxes, which they had asked about, or than the resurrection, which they had questioned Jesus about. Even more important than the greatest commandment, which they had, they had asked. Uh, really the vital question that they should be asking, and they're not, is who is the, the Messiah? Who is the Christ? Or as Jesus puts the question, whose son is he? Whose son is the Christ? And the word Christ is the, the Greek word, which translates the Old Testament word for Messiah or anointed one. So uh, actually, in, in, as Jesus would have been speaking by Aramaic, uh, he would have really been asking, whose son is the Messiah? But in, in Greek, it gets translated to Christ. Same word, same meaning. And, and Jesus was really asking here not just, uh, who his father is, uh, although that's part of it, but he's really asking them, do you really know who the Messiah is? Do you really know what he's about? Uh, do you know about his real person and his real reign and the nature of his origin? Uh, and behind this question is really this, is Christ the Messiah just a man, uh, a descendant of David who uh, by purely human means will come to set up a, a politically independent nation in Israel? Or is there more to it than that? Um, and, and uh, of course, the Pharisees uh, reply with uh, this great question, really the, the most important question they could ask, uh, and they reply with what I would characterize as a Sunday school answer. You know what a Sunday school answer is? I've taught Sunday school, and, and there's only three answers that seem to apply to every question. God, Jesus, and the Bible. And any time a Sunday school teacher asks a question, the kids fire off in that order. God, Jesus, the Bible, right? Uh, one of them is always bound to be right. Uh, and of course, uh, normally it is, right? Um, Jesus is kind of the answer to all the questions. Uh, it's not that it's wrong, but it's incomplete. And, and we see the, the, the Pharisees here, their answer is not wrong, but it's just not complete. Uh, whose son do you think he is? Who is the Christ? And their answer is the son of David. Um, uh, good answer, true answer, uh, but it's not really complete. It's, it, is, it is really what I would call a Sunday school answer. It's shallow and kind of what is expected and not really well thought out, uh, not really explaining uh, who the Messiah is. And it's a sign of their lack of understanding of what the Messiah is all about and his role and significance in all of uh, God's salvation history. So, so Jesus turns and he, and he asks them another question. Of course, Jesus knew this would be their, their answer. It was the standard answer. The Messiah would be a descendant, a son of David. Uh, so Jesus probes a little deeper to find uh, how much they really know and understand about this Messiah. And he, and he does that in verse 43 by saying to them, How is it then that David, in the Spirit, calls him Lord? Uh, and then Jesus quotes from Psalm 110, verse 1. Uh, and he pretty much quotes directly out of the Old Testament uh, scriptures. The Lord said to my Lord, 
Sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Uh, A lot of lords in this verse, and it's a little bit confusing, but it basically breaks down like this. Um, David calls his son Lord. Uh, The first Lord in, in this passage, the Lord, the Lord, said to my Lord, the first Lord is referring to Yahweh or God, right? So you could say, God said to my Lord. So the second Lord is another figure who is greater than David. And he's greater because David... Uh, calls him by the title Lord or Master. Now, um, uh, a father in, in, in Old Testament and in, in this time, a father could potentially call his son Lord if he outranked him. So, for example, uh, Jesse, who was David's father, once David uh, ascended to the throne and became the king over Israel, it would have been right and appropriate and probably expected for Jesse to address David as Lord at least in public. Uh, now, uh, in private, he may, may still call him, you know, little David or Sonny or whatever his nickname for him was. But in public, it would have been the, the honorable thing to, to address him as Lord. Uh, because in that case, David did outrank his father. But there's a problem when it comes to somebody outranking David. Because David uh, would have been seen by all of Israel as the greatest king and rightful founder of Israel. Uh, Saul was a failure as king, but David proved to be a man after God's own heart, and he rose to really establish the kingdom of Israel under his rule. And from that time on, throughout all the kings of Israel, they, the standard by which every king was measured was David. Did they measure up to David as the great example of what a king was, or did they fall short? And even Solomon, as great as he was, uh, and as, as glorious as his kingdom was, as Solomon did not outrank David as king. So David would never have said to his son Solomon, Lord. Right? Um, so how could David then call him Lord, this, this one who would come after him? How could he call him Lord if he's, if he's his son? Uh, the only way that would be possible is that, uh, that this one was more than a king, was greater than King David. Uh, since king uh, was the highest possible rank in Israel, in Israel, and David was the highest of the kings, how could David call him Lord? And that's the puzzle. And that's the puzzle that Jesus lays out to the Pharisees. How is that possible that, that the Messiah could be uh, the son of David and yet be his Lord? Uh, and it's interesting uh, the, the term uh, son of David uh, has already been used by Matthew several times in this gospel as a title for Jesus by people who were identifying him as a Messiah. Uh, most recently in Matthew 21, uh, verse 9, uh, when, when Jesus makes his great entry into Jerusalem as, as the coming promised Messiah or king, and the crowds were shouting out, Hosanna to the son of David. Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Hosanna in the highest. And so they were already using this title, Son of David, about Jesus, and they intended it to be messianic. By using that title, they are proclaiming that they believe Jesus is the Messiah. Uh, And yet David himself, by the Holy Spirit, recognizes a superiority to this Messiah that places him above David, one greater than David. Um, 
So what does this say about the nature and origin of this Messiah? Well, that's at the heart of the question. And that's what makes this the most important question that you must know the answer to. Right? This is a vitally important question. Uh, David was the great king of Israel. Now there's one coming greater than David. Uh, who is he and what is he about? And, and the, 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 there's a lot of irony in this passage, right? Um, and the irony is this. In verse 46 it says, so here's, here's this group of Pharisees. These, these are the, the best minds, uh, those with the most knowledge of Scripture in all of Israel. They were given the task of rightly studying and understanding and interpreting the Old Testament. And Jesus is not addressing one or two of them. They're all gathered together as a group. So it's like this brain pool uh, of the smartest minds and greatest scholars of the Bible right here. And Jesus says to them, you know, here's the question. Uh, here's the riddle. How do you explain it? And in verse 46 it says, And no one was able to answer him a word. Nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. <laughs> yeah, no more questions for Jesus, because uh, uh, it, it ends badly for them every single time. So here's this group of men who were the greatest scholars, teachers in Israel, and they can't give a single word. They can't say, well, some people think this and some people think that. They don't have an answer at all. And it's clear that this is a question they've really never thought about. Right? This is a question that they have not debated. And they've deba- debated a lot of stuff. They debated the greatest commandment. They debated about divorce. They debated constantly about the law. But it's clear that this is a topic that was new to them. And they had no idea uh, how to understand what this passage meant. And the great irony in all of this is that the very Messiah is the one asking them the question. Right? Jesus is the son of David, uh, who's standing right in front of them. And, and the incredible reality is that they fail to grasp who he is because they can't answer this question. And there's a vital connection here between their understanding of what the Bible says about Messiah and their failure to see him standing right in front of them. And grasp who he is. Uh, they could not see Jesus as the Messiah because they failed to rightly understand what the scriptures taught about him. So why was it so hard? Why was it so hard for the most diligent students of the word of the Bible to miss out on something as important as the Messiah? Uh, with all their diligent study, uh, the expert interpreters of the Bible, uh, yet and this question reveals they, they have no clue uh, what it's about. And they did not understand uh, really who the Messiah was, and hence they missed Jesus. Uh, well, we want to make sure that we don't make that same kind of mistake, right? Uh, there's a lot at stake here, and, and as we saw in the last couple of weeks, how you answer who Jesus is uh, really is the most critical and vital question in all of life. It is the most important question. Uh, and they missed it because they, not because they didn't study the Bible, not because they didn't know the Bible, but they missed it because they were not correctly interpreting Scripture and uh, understanding its meaning. Uh, so, so this is dang- a danger for anybody who studies the Bible. For any follower of Christ, we run the same risk of not really clearly uh, interpreting and understanding the meaning of Scripture. 
Uh, and it does take more than just reading. It takes even more than study. Uh, we must be guided by some clear principles as we study God's Word to make sure we accurately interpret its truth and its meaning. Um, uh, Thailand has some amazing caves, and maybe you visited some of them. Um, and caves can be an elaborate maze of tunnels and chambers and passages, uh, crisscrossing and um, like a labyrinth. And, it's, and on top of that, it's completely dark. And so a cave is a great place to get lost, uh, very lost, if you're not careful. Uh, but with a, a lamp and a guide, it can be a fascinating place to explore. And I like going to visit the, the cave at Qingdao. And you go down there, and there's some fun little ladies with their little lanterns, and you pay them some money, and they will guide you through the cave. And I like that approach because it makes sure I don't get lost. But I get to enjoy all that's there. Well, the same is true of Scripture. We need, uh, we need a, a light and a guide to help us explore, explore it and understand it. Uh, so, so let's look at this passage uh, a little deeper and see if it gives us some clues about how we can rightly understand Scripture. Uh, I'm going to talk about these principles somewhat as guides. I'm not going to talk so much about the light, and the light is the Holy Spirit. Uh, we have been given uh, the Holy Spirit as a teacher to guide us into understanding truth. Um, so that's going to be kind of an underlying assumption here, that, that the Holy Spirit is going to guide us as we study the Word. But there's some other good guides, some other good principles that will help us understand what the Bible means. And the first one is this. Uh, we need to trust uh, that the Bible is divinely inspired. All right, to trust that the Bible uh, is not just any book. It's a very unique and special book that was ultimately written by God himself. Uh, look again at verse 43. And Jesus said to them, how is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? How is it that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Um, two interesting things here. One, uh, Jesus uh, clearly views the Old Testament as not a book written by merely human beings. Uh, he doesn't look at Psalm 100 or quote Psalm 100 because he thinks David by himself wrote it. Right? He, Jesus says, no, these words were, were moved, were inspired uh, by the moving of the Holy Spirit in David's life. So David spoke these truths, not on his own, but because they were given to him by the Holy Spirit, and so they are authoritative. And so, so Jesus, uh, in, in making this statement, really puts his stamp of approval on all of the Old Testament scriptures that they are uh, inspired by God. And not just this one, but Jesus quotes from virtually every section of the Old Testament. Uh, and he, uh, by doing so, claims that it's written with authority by the moving of the Holy Spirit. Uh, what's also important, secondly, is that Jesus anchors uh, a correct understanding about himself, about the Messiah, in the inspired Word of God, not just in his own ideas. Like over and over again, we have seen this in Matthew. Jesus doesn't explain who he is based on wisdom, his own wisdom, or on human logic, or by saying, hey, look at all the cool miracles I've done. Although those certainly were a testament, a witness to his power and his authority as the Messiah. But throughout, throughout the Gospels, Jesus explains uh, who he is by quoting Scripture. 
Right? He roots uh, the, the understanding of what the Messiah is and who he is in uh, Old Testament prophecy and scripture. Um, and so it's important for us to, to, to have this same view of scripture that Jesus did. Right? We come to the Bible with this idea that it's not a humanly written book. Uh, it was actually written by God. Now, of course, by that we don't mean that God uh, wrote it with his own hand, like he did the Ten Commandments. Apart from the Ten Commandments, we have no other reference indicating that God wrote Scripture himself. Uh, Instead, God moves in the hearts and minds of human authors by the the Holy Spirit. So 2 Peter 1.21 puts it this way, No prophecy was ever produced by the will of man. But men spoke from God as they were carried along by the Holy Spirit. All right, so it's a partnership with the Holy Spirit working in the hearts and minds of the authors, directing all that they wrote and recorded. And the result is that this book, uh, David, the psalm he wrote, along with the rest of the Old Testament, was inspired by the Holy Spirit. It was uh, moved by his uh, agency. And that's what makes the Bible authoritative. Uh, We can trust its message is absolutely true because it comes from God himself. Um, And it's interesting that Jesus, uh, it's significant that Jesus never claims anything uh, for himself or about himself that was not first spoken of in the Old Testament. There's something very affirming in this. Um, Everything that Jesus claims for himself was spoken in the Old Testament, over the period of some 2,000 years, by dozens of different authors, all moved by the Holy Spirit, all proclaiming who Jesus is. And think about it. Compare that to the founders of any other religion, uh, right? Uh, Islam or Buddhism or Mormonism or, or you name it, right? None of them can claim 2,000 years of prophecy leading up to, to their arrival and their fulfillment of those prophecies. Buddha never claimed that. Buddha never claimed to fulfill any prophecy, much less prophecy that preceded him by some 2,000 years. Uh, The only prophecy I would argue that Muhammad fulfilled was that there would be false prophets. Uh, And I think he was one, right? Uh, But that's the only prophecy that he could claim to fulfill. And even Joseph Smith, the founder of Mormonism, claimed an angel spoke to him, and he wrote down a message Uh, that the angel dictated in the Book of Mormon. But there's no background to it, right? There's no prophetic buildup pointing to uh, what he wrote. So it's very confirming and reassuring to know that Jesus didn't invent something new, right? When he explained what the Messiah was, he didn't invent something out of his own mind. He drew from the ancient prophecies of the Old Testament scriptures. And so when we come to the Bible, we have to come with this perspective that we're digging into a book that is an incredible treasure because it is written from God to us. And so we need to respect that uh, its message as coming from him and authoritative. In other words, we don't get to make up what the Bible says. The most we can do is carefully discern what God was communicating and speaking to us through its authors. Secondly, and this is probably maybe one of the most important one principles of all, is do not trust your own understanding. Right? When you come to Scripture, do not trust your own wisdom or your own understanding to figure out what it says. 
the Bible is 100% inspired, and inspiration guarantees that it is absolutely accurate and true in every way. But inspiration does not guarantee that we understand it correctly. And the Pharisees have a lot to teach us here, right? Uh, the Old Testament was, was fully inspired, but the Pharisees had failed to interpret it correctly. Right? Inspiration does not mean uh, we're without flaw in our, in our understanding of it. Um, and, and the great error of the Pharisees was this. Uh, they interpreted Scripture according to their own traditions. So anytime a Pharisee came to the Old Testament, uh, he didn't really actually study the Bible. In fact, uh, for the most part, they never actually read the Bible. When they talk about reading the Scriptures, what they really did was they studied the commentaries, uh, called, called the, the Mishnah, the commentaries on the Old Testament. And there were volumes and volumes and volumes of these commentaries. And, uh, and so they put these, these commentaries, these opinions, these interpretations, actually above Scripture to be more important than what the Bible actually said. And so Mark 7, 13, Jesus uh, criticizes them by saying, you make void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down, right, generation after generation. And so Jesus says, look, you don't understand Scripture because you don't actually study the Bible. Instead, you are consumed with your own opinions and ideas about it. And, and here's the truth. It doesn't matter how much you study the Bible, if you've already made up your mind what you think it says. Right? Now, this is a danger for all of us as, as students of the Bible. Because none of us comes as a blank slate. We all come with preconceived ideas about what we are convinced the Bible teaches. And... Um, you know, I want to get in, in trouble with Tim Miskaman, our resident theologian teacher who's not here at the moment, so maybe he's not watching and I can say this. But here's the thing. Theology is important, right? And theology is, is what we believe organized into systematic truths. Okay, that's what we mean by theology. A system that spells out kind of our main beliefs about Jesus and the Bible. But, uh, sorry Tim, but our theology can actually get in the way of understanding Scripture. Let me say that again. Our theology can actually get in the way and prevent us from accurately understanding Scripture. If we, like the Pharisees, place our theology over an honest study of Scripture. And here's the reality. My, my theology, for one, has changed many times over the years. Now, it hasn't changed, meaning I used to think Jesus was the Son of God and now I don't. Not like that. Uh, but, but I've had to revise and fine-tune and upgrade my theology repeatedly, right? Um, and that's because none of us have perfect theology. I, I forget which one, but one great famous theologian once said that at best, our theology is probably only 80% accurate, right? But here's the thing. Scripture is 100% accurate. My theology may need to be updated, but Scripture never changes, Right? So Scripture has to have authority even over our theology. And when we come to Scripture, we've got to be super careful that we uh, study Scripture for what it is without letting too much of our theology blind us from seeing what the Bible actually teaches. That's exactly what the, the Pharisees were doing. Uh, I had to change my theology 
Because when I read the Bible and studied it, some of my theology just didn't hold up, right? It crashed into the Bible and fell apart. And, and that's a good thing, right? Uh, so be careful that we don't make up our minds and our opinions about what Scripture says before we open it and begin investigating. Uh, unfortunately, some people do elevate their theology above the Bible. And, and it blinds them to seeing what Scripture clearly teaches. And the truth is it takes a lot of humility to admit we may not know everything. Right? And it takes humility to say, you know, my theology may not be fully worked out. Uh, I need to keep going to Scripture and let Scripture keep teaching and informing and adjusting and changing my theology. Uh, Proverbs 3, verses 5 and 6 is a great reminder here. Trust in the Lord with all your heart and do not lean on your own understanding. In all your ways acknowledge Him and He will make your paths. He will guide you into the truth if you trust Him. Third thing, third guiding principle here, is make sure you are asking the right questions. And by that I really mean ask, that you're asking the most important questions about Scripture. You see, the Pharisees, as Jesus points out by, by, by bringing up this question, as I said, Jesus' intention here, his purpose, is to show that they really were uh, debating the wrong things. Right? They were investing things that really were not the core and central focus of Scripture, right? They, they failed to understand what was really important, and so they weren't asking the right questions when they came to Scripture. And, and uh, the Pharisees had come to believe that what was most important, what was really central in the Old Testament, was the law, right? And their own obedience to the law. How well they could keep the law. How well they could uphold their own man-made righteousness. And that was uh, the center driving force of how they view and saw Scripture. They saw the law as everything, as the center that held all of the Old Testament together and pointed towards the future. Um, but the problem with that view is it makes it all about them. When, when the law becomes the center and the central focus, uh, what matters is what you can do to keep the law and earn your own salvation. Uh, their questions all focus on issues related to keeping the commandments. Should we pay taxes? Is it permissible? Is it permissible? Is it lawful to get divorced? Uh, what is the great commandment? Right? That is their focus. But that is not the main message of the Bible. If I were to ask you, and I've got a small enough group here, I could actually ask the people here in this room, what is the main topic or message of Scripture? I won't put them on the spot, but it would be fun. How, how would you answer that? Right? If I were to ask you, what is the main and most important theme of the Bible, the main message of the Bible, how would you answer that? Um, when we come to Scripture, we need to see the Bible and ask the questions of it based on its main, primary, central focus and message. And I think the main message is this, that... Uh, that that we need to see the Bible through the lens of God's glory being demonstrated in his plan to redeem lost sinners. Let me say that again. We see all the Bible through the lens of God's glory as it unfolds in his plan to redeem lost sinners. 
that is the lens uh, of Scripture. And it essentially is the lens of the gospel. Right? That's why we talk a lot about being gospel-centered or gospel-focused or being Christ-centered. It means that Jesus is the main point of the whole Bible from Genesis to Revelation. And his work of redeeming us on the cross is the main point of all of God's saving work. The Old Testament as a shadow or as a pointer, as a prophecy, points to this great climax and central focus of Jesus coming as the great Savior. And then the New Testament talks about Jesus coming and points to the end of time where that salvation will be worked out in our lives and in all the world. Right? Uh, if they had focused on their need for a Savior, uh, realizing their need for a Savior rather than trying to save themselves, they would have spent a lot more time studying passages like Psalm 110. They would have lot, been a lot more concerned about this Messiah who was the promised one not only to bring political deliverance, but to uh, bring about the greatest exodus from sin and death greater than that of Moses, greater than that of uh, David, uh, that he would be the great Passover lamb who would take away the sin of the world. Right? If they had seen the Bible through that lens, uh, they would have been much more prepared to answer Jesus' question. And more significantly, they would not have missed Jesus when he came, right? uh, as he stood right in front of them. They, they would have understood that Jesus was the Messiah. Uh, likewise, we will have a much greater understanding of the Bible, all of it, every part of it, when we start seeing it through the lens of this grand theme of the gospel. We are lost because of our sin and rebellion against God. And there's nothing we can do to save ourselves. There's nothing we can do to wash away the guilt of our own sin uh, and, and rebellion against God. But God has sent a Savior, Jesus uh, the, the Messiah, who took my place on the cross and paid the full penalty for my sin to restore us to a right relationship with God and never-ending fellowship with Him. Um, so as we interpret, as we try to understand Scripture, see it through those truths of the Gospel. Um, finally, um, Jesus says in verse 44, uh, the, the Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until, uh, until I put your enemies under your feet. If then David calls him Lord, how is he son? How is he his son? Uh, Jesus actually doesn't answer the riddle, right? He puts it out there for them and they can't answer it and Jesus doesn't rescue them. He doesn't say, well, by the way, it means that... Uh, he is the son of David. However, he is so much greater than David because he ultimately came from heaven and he will ascend to heaven and he will sit seated at the right hand of God in a place of ultimate dominion and authority as king of kings and lord of lords over all creation. Right? That, that's the answer. Right? And we glean that from the rest of Scripture and from what unfolds in Jesus' own life. Uh, he leaves it to us to answer that question. Uh, it wasn't wrong that Jesus, the Messiah, is son of David, but it was incomplete and in that it failed to understand he was so much more than just an earthly king. He was so much more than just another David. He was the son of God, fully God, fully man. Not born of man only, but sent from God 
uh, through supernatural birth. And after the cross, we know that Jesus returned to heaven and he is now seated at the right hand of God, not on an earthly throne, but in the very uh, throne room of heaven. Uh, So the Messiah holds a position of greater authority and dominion than David could ever dream of. Seated at the right hand of God. David nor, nor any other king in Israel ever claimed that their rule was at the right hand of God. Right? That was a place of supreme authority over all of creation. A place of ultimate dominion and authority over heaven and earth. Uh, this image of, of making every enemy a footstool was a great picture of a conquering king showing his dominion over one who he had conquered. And uh, this, would, this was actually done in the Old Testament where a conquering king would, would take a king that they had conquered and they would make them bow on the ground before them and they would literally put their foot on the king's neck as a sign of dom- dominion over that king, of total control over that king and total defeat by that king. And that's the picture here. God says he's going to put every enemy of Christ under his feet in total defeat uh, of those enemies, and that Jesus would rule with total dominance and victory. Um, and, here, and here's really the last principle. We cannot really fully understand what the Bible means until we are willing to acknowledge uh, the supremacy of Christ as the rightful king and ruler over all the universe, but also over my own life. And the real hard issue of the Pharisees, uh, when you get to the bottom of it, is that they refused to acknowledge that Jesus was superior to them. Uh, In their pride, they refused to allow anyone to be Lord or master over them. They were determined to be master and Lord over their own life alone. And they would bow to no one, not even the Messiah. Um, And you can never really understand Scripture if you uh, will not allow it to govern, or God and Jesus to govern your life through it. Uh, The purpose of Scripture is not just to give us information, but to show us how we can know God and walk with Him, and that requires submission to Him. Uh, Jesus, uh, as Messiah, is ultimately Lord. And so we need to make Him Lord of our life, if we're going to really understand what the Bible means. Uh, And to do that, we need to let him take control of our whole life and govern us. Um, So why should we do that? Well, here's two two reasons why we should let Jesus be Lord, Master, um, Ruler over our life. First of all, because he is wise. And not just kind of wise, but incredibly wise. Right? Uh, At the end of this passage, it says, No one was able to answer him a word, nor from that day onward was anybody stupid enough to ask him any more questions. It's my own translation. (laughs) It doesn't actually say stupid in the Bible. But it's kind of what is implied there, right? Um, Jesus proved to be so far above them in wisdom that even the greatest minds in Israel, right, even all together collected, they could not outwit or outsmart Jesus, right? Uh, and, and, and Jesus is, uh, he is wisdom incarnate, right? He knows what is right and best. 
So here's the thing. If his wisdom is far beyond the greatest of human minds, why do we still think at times that he cannot understand us? Or know really what we are going through? Or know how to lead us in difficult times or difficult circumstances? Why is it sometimes we doubt that Jesus can solve our problems and difficulties? Or why do we question when God does things we don't agree with? as if we are smarter than him, right? You see, we need to let Jesus be Lord over our life, which means we trust his plans, knowing that he is wise and his ideas and thoughts are so much better than ours, right? And I'll confess and admit that's hard sometimes when life does not go our way, when we meet with difficulties and challenges and things happen that we do not like. Sometimes it's hard to trust in his wisdom, But we must believe that his wisdom is so exceeding our own that he is worthy of our trust. But there's a second reason why we should uh, bow before him and let him be Lord over our life. And that is because not not only is he wise, but because he loves us and gave himself up for us. And that was the great thing that of all that the, the, the Israelites, the Jews, the Pharisees did not understand that the Messiah was coming not to overthrow Rome, but to overthrow death and Satan and sin. And the path to that victory was not by a sword and by power, but by becoming the suffering servant who would lay himself down as a sacrifice for sin upon the cross. And Jesus did that out of his love for us, right? Uh, Scripture says that he loved us and gave himself up for us uh, to pay uh, by his own life the great purchase price for sin. So if he would do all that for us, uh, out of his great love for us, if he would give up his own life and die a terrible death for us, uh, it, it shows how much he cares for us, his concern for us, his heart for us, and therefore we can trust him to be a Lord and Master who will absolutely do the very best for us. Not that we always like it or always agree with his plans, but we can trust that in the end, it will always be the best, no matter what. Right? So so what, what was required here, like if the Pharisees could have really answered this question correctly, what they should have done is they should have bowed before Jesus and proclaimed him Lord. But their own pride and blindness kept them from it. But but that should not be true of us, right? And so I just want to close by reading Philippians 2, 9 through 11. Right? Um, Therefore, God has highly exalted Jesus and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus Every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth. And every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. You've been listening to a sermon recorded at Chiang Mai Christian Fellowship in Chiang Mai, Thailand. For more information, please view our website at www.ccfth.com dot o r g